0: Hi, welcome to episode eight of Section Hiking the Appalachian Trail. I'm your host, John Eskelson, and we're coming at you this day uh, from Harrisonburg, Virginia, where one of my children is spending the day at James Madison University. Uh, And while there's a horde of loving, supportive parents outside the event staring at their phones, I'm taking my daughter, my dog, and we're going to go hiking in the Shenandoah uh, National Park. We did actually, a little bit earlier today, we did uh, a short hike, about two and a half miles. Um, It was fun. It was, unfortunately, we only had an hour or so before we had to get back and to head back home. But it was a great time, and we really enjoyed it. We are sponsored today by the Committee to Restore America's National Parks. This is an advocacy group for everyday people who want to convince Congress to eliminate the $12 billion maintenance backlog in our national parks. Please go to their website and support them at www.RestoreAmericasNationalParks.org. Today we're gonna to focus this episode on different means of navigation and how to, you know, I guess, essentially not get lost. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to highlight quickly an article I came across in Adventure Journal. Uh, the link in the show is in the show notes. It's called Earl Schaefer, the first thru hiker of the Appalachian Trail, uh, embody the trail's soul. It tells the uh, story of Earl Schaefer, who began hiking uh, north from Mount Oglethorpe in Georgia on April fourth, nineteen forty-eight, and made his way to Maine, finishing at uh, Mount Katahdin. Uh, in 124 days, which would be very a very quick hike even for today. What he did that was significant is complete the first through hike that we have on record of the Appalachian Trail, establishing the concept of a through hike. Previous to this hike, others had only completed different sections of the trail. And in fact, there was a lot of doubt whether the trail could be done in uh, completely as one big, long trail. Now, well before, he had discussed the, hiking the trail with a friend after its completion in 1937. But he didn't attempt it till after World War II, where he had returned home, where he he'd served uh, as in the South Pacific as a radio operator. I mean, I think it's a radar op- operator. And his friend had been killed. He was listless. He was reading about the Appalachian Trail and finding out that the entire trail had not been hiked altogether. And so he decided to hike it. Uh, he did it for two reasons, it seems. Uh, First, he wanted to eliminate any lingering doubt that the trail could be hiked, end to end. And he also wanted to, quote, walk the war out of my system, unquote. And so he got up and walked. Uh, During the course of the hike, he gave away his tent. He cooked over a fire and navigated by trail signs and his wits, becoming the 1948 version of an ultralight hiker. He wore only one pair of boots along the hike which apparently now have been kept in the permanent collection at the Smithsonian. I'm going to have to check that out next time I'm downtown. A curator at the Smithsonian is quoted as saying that he, that uh, Schaefer didn't wear socks on the hike and that quote, they're smelly. Those cabinets holding the boots are opened as, as little as possible. After completing the trail, Schaefer moved to a log cabin surrounded by goats and cats and he worked odd jobs. In 1965, So about 20 years later, he decided to hike the Appalachian Trail again, this time from north to south, and in the process cut about a month off his record, but he didn't like the experience. He didn't find it very fulfilling. He thought it was too fast for him, and because he started late summer, there were fewer wild berries available. He then completed the Appalachian Trail a third time at 79 years old in 1998, again going northbound from Georgia as a 50th anniversary of his original trek. He was slower and more reflective, and he finished it just under six months in 173 days. At the time, he was the oldest person to complete the hike. Uh, It's a good article overall, and I encourage you to read the whole thing, including the article he did uh, with NPR afterwards. So we're back and we're ready to discuss different aspects of land navigation. Making sure there's a way to keep from getting lost is one of the essentials of hiking. For the more free-spirited among us, it's making sure there's an exit plan so we don't end up getting injured or dying while we're outside. Really, there's three different basic tools available today for traveling in the woods. A map of some kind is the first kind. A compass is a second, and it usually augments a map. And third, GPS devices. These devices are found in a variety of uh, modes or or, or types including handheld devices, um, a GPS or or altimeter watch, or a personal location beaker or beacon. It's different elsewhere, but out East in the United States, the trails are so well established that most of the time you just need to follow the route description from a guidebook or on the webpage and follow the blazes or route markers that are along the trail the blazes on the Appalachian Trail are white. And on the hike that my daughter and I went on today, we spent about, we were only a mile on the trail, but you know, they're very regularly marked. Okay. First, let's talk about the use of map and compass. It's my personal belief that paper topographic map map is an essential item when going into the woods. A topographic map in contrast to the kinds of maps one gets when they search Google or other types of programs is great because it does a terrific job at providing the necessary information to inform one's hike. Specifically, it displays contour lines, indicating elevation as well as things like roads, building footprints, rivers, lakes, and the like. The standard in the United States are maps created by the United States Geolog- Geological Survey, or USGS, and they can be downloaded for free on the World Wide Web. I know that uh, the Euro- in the European Union, um, they have a similar website and organization that does the same thing, although I'm not familiar with it, with the specifics. Using topographic maps requires some knowledge of how they work so one can be oriented to the world represented on the map. The first thing I noticed is that North is always at the top of the map. So situating the map so that North is on top is the first thing one should do to read it. USGS maps include several specific commonalities that make it easy for them to be read. First, each one is named for a prominent geographic feature that appears somewhere within its boundaries. For instance, I'm looking at map eight of the Appalachian Trail in Northern Virginia, Snickers Gap to Chester Gap. That is the name. Second, each map is dated. Newer maps tend to be more accurate than older ones. This Appalachian Trail map that I'm looking at was revised in July, 2017, so it's fairly recent. Third, the USGS map makers use uniform color schemes so that everyone knows what's what. Blue represents water and other aquatic features. Green includes vegetation. On this map, there are three green shades, meaning slightly different things. One is for woodland, one is for national and state parks, and a third one is for wildlife management areas. Each different green represents a different type of uh topography wipe signifies features like meadows or other things without much vegetation like uh, like boulder fields and the like black ink is reserved for anything built by humans like buildings and stuff red ink is normally for larger roads and sometimes for survey lines of a township On these maps that I'm looking at specifically, part because they're produced by the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, the trail's corridor is signified by a goldish yellow color. So you know the general location within the map where the AT crosses. Finally, the contour lines, allowing one to read key terrain features, are listed in brown. With all this information together, one gets a pretty good picture of what the terrain looks like in real life. On the trail, it's possible to be oriented and know where, where I'm at by looking around at the terrain around me and associating it to where I'm physically at. Um, back in the a long time ago when I was in the army, I would used to I would do my land navigation courses this way. And I got pretty good at it. Things are made much more precise once we add a compass with our map and we can better orient our map, identify specifically where we are, um, identify landmarks and find our way using a compass in conjunction with our map. A basic but good compass is also super lightweight and easy to use, literally pointing us in the right direction. So I needed some refreshment on how to use my compass. So I kind of took the time to think through it, read up on it and write out some directions. So I hope, people don't find this too pedantic, but I found this as a useful reminder um, as I was kind of refreshing on map orientation and compass using skills. The way one orients a map using a compass begins with rotating the housing of the compass, that's the circular area that, that holds the needle, until the north, the N for the north lines, lines up with the direction of travel arrow on the base plate. Once we've done that, we place the long edge of the compass base plate alongside the left or right border of the map or alongside any north-south line on the map. Next, we turn the compass and the map as a unit until the compass needle settles inside the orienting arrow on the floor of the compass housing. The red tip of the needle will be pointed towards north on the compass housing. That's how we can make sure that our map is pointed correctly to the north. Next, we can pinpoint our location by orienting by taking our map that's been oriented and pointing the base plate of the compass um, in the direction of the arrow at one of the landmarks on our map. For example, for example, a mountaintop, a lake, or a building. When we hold the base plate still and turn the compass housing until the red tip of the needle lines up in the outline of the orienting arrow, we, can, we get the bearing of the landmark. Once we account for declination or the natural magnetic field around us, we place our compass on the map with the edge of the base touching the symbol representing the landmark. Ignoring the needle, we move the entire compass around that point on the map until the orienting lines on the floor of the compass housing are parallel with any true north lines on the map. We lightly pencil a line towards our location along the base plate edge from the landmark symbol. We then find a second landmark and repeat the process of taking a bearing, placing the compass on the map and drawing a line towards where we're at on the map. The spot on the map where the two lines intersect indicates where we are, and we can confirm our location by repeating this process with additional landmarks. Next, we can then find our way with our map and compass. Now that we know where we are, we can get to where we need to be. To do that, we place the long edge of our compass base plate on a real or imaginary line connecting the map points representing our present location and our destination. We next rotate the compass housing until the orienting lines of the compass are parallel to the true north lines on the map. That will set us on the bearing of our destination. We then hold the compass at waist level with the direction of the travel arrow on the base plate pointing away from us. And then without changing the compass setting, turn our body until the red tip of the compass needle aligns itself with the orienting arrow. The direction of travel arrow will be aimed in the direction we want to go. So if we can see the place where we want to go, we simply hike to it. If not, we ought to choose an intermediate landmark in the direction we want to travel like a tree or a large boulder or another feature. With these basic skills in mind, we can navigate virtually anywhere. There are some additional issues involving declination or traversing difficult land masses that require additional learning and practice. um, But they're beyond my skills to describe or refresh, you know, as I'm going through this refresher on the podcast. Orienteering is a fun sport, and with practice, someone can get pretty good at it. There is an unofficial orienteering course uh, at a large park near our home when we lived in Germany. And uh, my son and I did it a couple times and had a lot of fun kind of navigating with our compass um, from the points uh, on the map and using the map to figure out where the next location was. Now I grew up on paper maps and I feel comfortable with them. I've also learned that carrying a ton of paper maps along the trail is not always the most efficient method. Doing this section hike is going to encompass five separate large maps on the, on the, uh, AT and, uh, you know, that's, that is a lot of paper. So there's gotta be a way in my mind to reduce the map paper and yet still use the benefits of paper maps. As some of you probably already know, there is an alternative uh, to using strictly paper maps, but still get the benefit of them using your smartphone. I learned about this um, from the guys on FKT podcast. Um, they talked about Gaia GPS and caltopo.com. Um, there are links to these. Sh- There's links to these websites in the show notes and also um, YouTube videos kind of talking about how to use them. I've been playing about playing around with both of these sites, and I found Gaia GPS more useful to me in terms of preparing for uh, an Appalachian Trail section hike. Both of them allow me to create maps and plan uh, my our pathway for the hike. I can identify routes, campsites, and see where things are, and then I can download and print out the specific maps that I need with a type of topographic features emphasized that I want. It's really easy uh, that especially since Gaia GPS has a setting specifically for the Appalachian Trail, which makes it even easier. Uh, while I've played around with CalTopo less than the other website, Gaia GPS, I like a couple of its features even more than Gaia GPS. I've gone through and looked at the various filters that they have, and I and they have one that identifies how much sun exposure an area has. Uh, for different months and days of the year based on historical data. That's pretty cool. It also has a filter that highlights how steep the grade uh, the hills are um, and what the grades are as you're going up. Uh, it also has live weather uh, temperature gauges and the like. And I have a feeling that over time I might be spending more time working on CalTopo, um, than I would, uh, than I will Gaia GPS. But one of the th- great things I, I like about it is that these uh, different websites sync to your phone and then you can use them offline. They're, they're stored there and you don't have to have your phone connected to a cell or Wi-Fi signal to utilize the maps that you've downloaded, which is great because it allows you to record, record a hike and then keep an accurate record of your location um not only that but most trails are also on the phone as well if i'd had this app in my 90 in the 90s my friends and i never would have gotten lost heading to that slot canyon we discussed in episode 7 um, but because we can use these maps and accurately plot my place in airplane mode it won't use up my phone batteries all that fast and i can limit the amount of paper i bring with me it's pretty cool The other thing is it's kind of like having your own GPS with your phone, which saves some weight um, because most people carry their phones with them today anyway. Um, And I look forward to looking, using these more often, but that brings me to the third option of navigation, which is, uh, you know, separate and apart from, from using one's phone or paper maps and a compass is a GPS device. GPS systems have been the most popular way to find our way out on the, in the woods for several years now. As mentioned earlier, these come in a wide variety of packages and levels of functionability. Now, I don't have the depth of knowledge to go into all the different types there are, but there are a variety, including watches, some of them made by Garmin, some of them made by Sunto, and several other brands that provide GPS routes on one watch, on one's watch. Uh, among a number of amazing features. There are items as simple as personal locator beacons, whose primary job is to track us when we're in the backcountry and allow loved ones to search and search and rescue know where we are once once the beacon is activated. Then there are handheld devices of differing, differing sophistication. Some are really basic, like the Garmin E-TREX um, to something really quite sophisticated, like the Garmin 66i, which has all the bells and whistles. I mean, but even today, the E-Tracks of today is much more sophisticated than the E-Tracks of, you know, 15 years ago, which, when I had uh, my, my E-Tracks. Regardless of the level and number of features, GPS systems are fantastic in that they provide reliable knowledge of where one is with minimal difficulty. For those who don't know how to use one, uh, watch one of the videos in the show notes on YouTube. I like the one with the British guys from Trail Magazine because he is so British, sincere and direct, I love it. The key is identifying waypoints and distances and then loading them into the GPS system and navigating towards them. I've included a second video that shows how to download maps and waypoints into a Garmin GPS. It really is simple and really is easy. When contemplating buying a GPS device, the biggest question is what kind and what sort of features one wants in the device they're getting. A really popular one is that's a couple years old now. I believe it, you know, 2016-2017 is when it came out, is the Garmin InReach Explorer Plus. Samuel uh Shinnellis wrote a review of the device, and you can see it in the show notes and found that he chose this one because it had a number of features he felt were helpful when he hiked the John Muir Trail and did other backpacking explorations um, since then. Now, the concern was largely from his parents um, that he would be out of cell coverage and he felt it necessary to stay in touch with those around him, especially since they wanted to be in touch with him. Unlike the basic units featured in the videos I linked to, This one has two-way satellite messaging capabilities as well as a fully functioning GPS unit in it. It also has an SOS function in case of trouble. My friend Trent owns one of these devices, the InReach Plus and he absolutely loves it. It's relatively light at seven and a half ounces and it has a tremendous amount of functionality. He really loves the maps that come with this unit and the fact you can track where you are in one to 10 second intervals. He loves the two-way communication satellite service and the worldwide coverage. He bought it originally when he was traveling frequently to Africa. It uses the Iridium satellite network, which covers the entire world. In addition, you can Bluetooth this this handset to your phone and with the help of the Garmin app, utilize your phone to send texts and other functions that are easier to use off the phone than on the device itself. It also has an audible message notifier and can get you can get weather not- notifications. I can't, I can't help but mention that he emphasized that with me the first time he brought it over. He was so excited. So there's a lot of pros here, but there are also a few cons. First, it's, ex- it's expensive. It costs about 450 bucks, and there's a monthly service plan that can get expensive if you plan to send a lot of messages, the most expensive plan being $100 a month. It's a little bulky, and its battery life is limited based on how much usage it gets. Now, there's a newer, hotter version of the Garmin InReach, which is the Mini, and it's the one I'd buy if I was going to get one of these devices. It's still pretty new, although it's much smaller at 3.5 ounces, half the weight and half the size of the Explorer Plus, but it still has nearly all of the functionality. You can use it by itself, however, because it's so small, it's ease of use will be facilitated if you set up well ahead of time all the information in a preset type format. Like the Explorer Plus, it's also more geared uh, for usage with a smartphone once it's been paired to, via Bluetooth. I've included a fuller review of this, of this device, and uh, it's also in the show notes and goes through all its bells and whistles. I've thought about whether or not to buy a GPS for the purposes of this section hike and have decided against it, At this time, because I'll be on the Appalachian Trail in densely populated regions of northern and central Virginia, I don't believe I'll be at risk of getting lost or at risk of isolation, especially since, you know, for about 100 miles, I'll be walking along Skyline Drive in the Shenandoah National Park, where in a February day, I came across three or four different people on a short hike. But there are going to be other portions of the trail where something like this would be really useful. Having a paper map will be really helpful to see the terrain we'll have coming up, how far we have until the end of the day and what sort of resources are available along the way. Really, so long as I stay on the trail and follow the white blazes on the, tr- on the trees and follow the signs, I should be in pretty good shape. There will be moments, however, when I don't know where I'm at, and it will be good to know how much further is required on any given day. Second, I've already been able to identify the portion of the ATLB I'll be hiking using, using uh, Gaia GPS and prepared some maps that I can print out and have with me, but also have the apps handy with the maps in my phone that I can refer to as well. The information at Gaia GPS will be a great complement to the paper topographic maps and the compass I've already got ready to go. So that's all we have today. I've really enjoyed preparing this episode and getting a refresher on using maps and compass, as well as learning a couple of key computer programs that'll help me stay on the trail easier. I'm very excited about this development. And I've also been happy to be able to research more into GPS systems and kind of figure out what I would use um, once I feel it's necessary to get myself um, a GPS system. I'm looking forward to talking with you all again next week. Please leave a review on your podcasting platform and give me your thoughts about navigation on the trail. You can also find me on Twitter at Section Hiking the Appalachian Trail and on Instagram at Section underscore hiking underscore the underscore AT. Have a great day and take care.